It's Dr. Stu's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based birthing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm here as usual in a different locations as has become the norm uh, with the best co-host in the blizzards, my friend, the mysterious one, Bliss Young. Well, Bliss, you, uh, you're not suffering. Put it that way. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I'm not suffering. Um, yeah. It's pretty in, beautiful in, here. This is in Malibu, so this is a, a, it's a nice deal for her. Mm-hmm. Um, you can uh, you can reach us at uh, drstoothpodcast.com on their smartphone app. Uh, we're we're expanding now. We're going to have some major changes coming in the next eight weeks or so to the podcast that uh, we're actually going to uh, probably. Uh, become a little bit more professional in our production, which is really exciting for me. <laughs> I, I won't have to do as much, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, you can reach me Good. with questions at askdrstew at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-D-R-Stu, S-T-U, at gmail.com, or bliss at, bliss at birthingbliss.com. My website is birthinginstincts.com, and blisses is birthingbliss.com. Instagram at birthingbliss, me at birthingbliss. At Birthing Bliss Midwife. Well, if they start typing in Birthing Bliss, it'll come up. Yeah, YSS. Yes. Um, so those of you that are here today joining us um, in the Zoom, you definitely can put uh, comments and questions in the chat. We'll do what we can to get to them. Um, a couple of you have already said hello from Canada. Um, Danny is 38 weeks pregnant and uh, Bethany from Virginia, who has been a fan for a long time since you were um, working with Brian. Dr. Stu, since you you were working with Brian. You're shaking my, you're shaking the uh, cobwebs out of my brain. Speaking of cobwebs, I got a quick correction before we go anywhere. Okay. Oh, you want to do something first? I had a little segue from Brian. So last time you asked me um, how many podcasts I had done with you, and I said we'd have to look back. So I went back to the app today. My first podcast with you is on October 17th, 2017, where you, um, it was Remember to Breathe. So we talked about the birth that we had done together, where we had to do a full resuscitation and transport on a breech baby. Um, And that was podcast 117. So what is that? Almost 80? Where are we at? 95? 80, this is the 81st podcast, except for the couple that you were yeah, available. But, but 80, 81 yeah. podcasts. So I think you passed Brian, I think. I don't remember how many I did with Brian. So Yeah. So we're in our third year together since this is 2021. May there be many, many more to come. Yay. Um, the other thing I haven't done in a long time, because I don't really have an update personally on how many births this week. I've just been waiting for this mama to deliver before I go to Hawaii. Um, but I used to make sure and check for um, reviews and I haven't done that in a long time. So I'm going to read a couple. Um, let's see. February 20th from Jennifer. Um, Dr. Stu and Bliss gives such valuable information and support to the birthing community. As a mother, baby, uh, RN, doula, and birth educator in Lower Alabama, I look forward to every episode knowing I will gain evidence-based common sense gems that I can use for my own self-care and for the care I give to my clients. I'm so thankful for their generosity of time, experience, and love. Um, on June 30th, 2020, Chelsea said, love listening to Dr. Stu, even more for just life lessons, not just birth. Always feel like I get something out of it. 
July 25th, Dr. Stu is a leader, a pioneer, and a doc committed to the ancestral ways human babies, like all mammals, have been brought into the world. He's committed to human sovereignty and freedom and inspiring all of us to that end. That's got to feel good. Yeah, where are you you getting these from? From our podcast app. And it really does help if people do reviews because then it helps other people find our podcast our um, podcast so that people can get this great information. So one more, and then I want to hear about you. Um, I've been listening to Dr. Stu's podcast pretty much from the beginning. This is from Dula Dina um, when he had the radio guy, Brian on. I've listened to so many um, birth podcasts. I started out as a new doula and now I am doing my precepting for nursing midwifery school. And this one is really one of a kind. I love the laid back format and the honesty that is here. Pretty much every podcast these days is perfectly planned and executed. Okay. Um, but I love how, but I love how Stu and Bliss come on and share their birth stories and thoughts all the while teaching so much. I really wish they would record more often, which I think we've been doing a better job. Um, as I feel this is a huge benefit for birth workers, I really, I also really love how Dr. Stu is not afraid to express his personal opinions, even though they are not frequently in line with the mainstream. Gotta really respect that. Thank you. Please don't stop doing what you're doing for women and families and healthcare professionals out there. So good job, Dr. Stu. Was, was that from my sister or was that? <laughs> <laughs> is that Dula Dina? Is that your sister? <laughs> no, no, that was just such a, those were all so nice. That's uh, I'm, I'm blushing actually. Yeah, we have five stars. Well, here's a lesson, a uh, life lesson is, uh, and I'm not the first one to say this, but haste makes waste. Okay. <laughs> because I, I made some show notes for today. Yeah. I can't read them. <laughs> well, I, we'll do great. We've got plenty to talk yeah. about. I, I, even, I even got out my magnifying glass so I could try to decipher <laughs> what I wrote. <laughs> and I still can't tell what I wrote. So oh, my, doc- my doctor handwriting has taken over completely now, and I, and I and I have to take more time when I print because you know we 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 type everything up or we we text everything, and so my handwriting has just gotten a, a, a atrocious. <laughs> I want to make a quick correction. Uh, I want to thank uh, Adrian L from uh, last week's podcast. I during the talk on melatonin mixed up melatonin with me- melanin uh, when I talked about pigment. So. Everything I said about melatonin was still accurate compared, you know, based on the article that Hannah had sent. But I, when I started talking about pigmentation, I, I mixed up the two in my brain, which I apologize for because we like to be accurate on Dr. Stu's podcast. You know, uh, a motto I got from another podcast is first tell the truth, then give your opinion. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to try to do it whenever we can here. So thanks, Adrian, for that correction. Okay, um, births. Just real quickly, I've had a crazy, not me personally, but my practice has had a crazy 48 hours. I had two clients I had to transfer out of care. Different stories, one with twins at 36 and 6 with IUGR and hypertension. Another one was a VBAC at 41 and 1 who developed hypertension and mild preeclampsia and wasn't close to, I mean, it wasn't going to, wasn't going into labor and, um, they went to different places. I was able to find them, 
appropriate support in the local hospitals here. One with our old pal, Dr. Chavira, and she's still in labor right now, the twins, and she seems to be doing fine. And and the other one uh, had a successful VBAC at California Hospital, and a shout out to the midwives at California Hospital, plus my good friend, well, we were re- when we were residents together, Tony Pickett. So he's a physician at um, California Hospital, did a marvelous job to get this lady a VBAC with her hypertension. She had a very interesting story, which when I talked to her about her birth, probably will go through her entire story with her permission next week. But I just wanted to say that that was a bit crazy. And now I, I also have a set of twins now who's 41 weeks today who was exposed to coronavirus possibly a few days ago. And we're waiting on her uh, culture or her, her swabs to come back. And we really don't, I mean, there's, there's the, the midwife community in, in that area. It's really confusing what to do. We really don't know what to do. We should, maybe we should talk about it for a little bit because obviously all of us have other clients. We, we really can't afford to get sick, but what do you do with somebody who, if she goes to the hospital is likely to not have the birth she wants, maybe even a cesarean, um, not have anybody around her that she wants um, because only because she was exposed, not necessarily because she has anything and we're waiting for our, her culture results to come back. And then what do we do if they do come back positive and she's asymptomatic? Um, yeah, it's interesting because a, a very veteran midwife actually called me this week and asked my opinion about it. I told you that. And I was very, uh, I was very honored, you know, that she would reach out to me. But um, from her perspective, if the mom is asymptomatic and tested positive, um, she felt like she would attend. Um, You and I have talked about, um, you know, someone could be shedding. But I assume that, you know, you'd wear a mask and gloves and you take all the precautions like you would if you had a client who maybe was positive for, you know, hepatitis or HIV or something like that. You know, we wouldn't necessarily, if those people were not showing symptoms, we wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, transfer them out of care. We would just be really, really careful. So, you know, I encourage that midwife to listen to her own um, intuition about what felt right for her because she was really right. the one who was going to be exposed. And I think that that is, um, you know, that's true exactly, informed that's consent. Exactly, you're so wise, Liz, because that's exactly what was happening yesterday. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. still up in there. We're sort of hoping, even though she's twins at 41 weeks, we're sort of hoping she'll not going to labor for another day. We should have the results back either late today or tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If she's negative, problem solved. If she's positive, I'm going to go anyway, because if I don't go, then she has to go to the hospital. Well, the problem with doing a test so close to being exposed is that she may not show. They say nine days is actually when yep. you know you can kind of rule it out. But yeah, you got to do what you feel comfortable with. Right. And, mm-hmm. I, and I trust that she will tell me if she's not feeling well and that sort of thing. And then, and then, mm-hmm. you know, then there's the other problems with COVID, which, you know, were brought up in our discussions about blood clotting and, and uh, a higher rate of, you know, clots forming inside your body from this. And I haven't seen that too much. I've heard about long COVID and all that thing, but I don't know that it's, that happens right away. So again, because there's so much unknown about it, I, you know, I mean, I just feel like I have a duty to go. And what I did learn from the conversation was that when the mother texted us to tell us that this had happened and she said, I said, I texted right away that said, well, you know, I'll go. 
And what I should have done first was I should have talked to the team first to find out where they stood before I went. So lesson learned, um, even though, because up here, I'm sort of master of my own world. But when, when I'm in a different part of Southern California, I don't know the, the midwifery climate there so much. I don't know what people are thinking as much. And I should have. So lesson learned. Yeah. A, a lot of stuff going on. No, no real births, but, but babies birthing yeah. because... Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a it's a little bit of a chaotic time. Some people say, "Well, we've just entered a new a new moon, so maybe everything's going to change." I don't know if I buy that stuff, but um, people are always looking for reasons why things happen. But I think everything is internal. I mean, uh, you know, whether you're happy or sad or whatever else. You, I mean, there's things that can affect you terribly, but how you react to them is is internally. So we shall mm -hmm. see. Um, how this saga goes and next week we'll probably have a good story great and uh, next week I will be flying to Hawaii hopefully with my boys but maybe by myself so um, you will be having some guests I think next I think, week yeah I think I'm going to I have a uh, I have a medical student from Chicago Med who's spending three weeks with me yeah. it's not often I get a medical student so I think I'm going to ask her to come on the podcast great to give an insight as to why she's even interested in being with me and why she's interested in doing OB in, in today's client, in today's world, and what her uh, ultimate plans are, and how she plans to navigate the medical industrial complex of four years of residency and still come out whole on the other side. So we'll see. It'll be interesting. I hope for people to listen to that next week. Um, okay. So you had you had something uh, that it's been sort of sitting in your file for a while. So let's get to it. Yeah. Um, so I was going through some paperwork, just kind of like, you know, doing some organization. And I read through this article that I've had for a little bit, um, Pushing for First Time Moms by Gloria LeMay. It was actually published in Midwifery Today in the year 2000. And you laughed. You're like, 2000? That's a long time ago. But it's got some really great stuff. And, you know, the ancient art of midwifery um, and women birthing babies doesn't really change in 20 years, 21 years. Um, so what she was talking no, but the, about, but the, the C-section rate did go up about 10, 10 points higher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to read you the scenario and I want to, and I want to see what you think. Okay. Hey. Um, let's take a typical scenario with an unmedicated first birth at home. The mother has been in the birth process for about 12 hours. The attendants have spelled each other, off throughout the night, membranes ruptured spontaneously with clear fluid after eight hours in the active phase, and mother and baby have normal vitals. There is dark red show, about two tablespoons per sensation, and the mother says, I have to push. This declaration on the part of the mother brings renewal of life into the room. The attendants rally and think, finally, we're going to see the baby the long um, wait will be done. We'll be relieved to see baby breathing spontaneously, and then we can start to clean up and be home to our families. Um, typically, the midwife does a pelvic exam at this point to see if the woman is fully dilated and we can get to the pushing phase. How does that sound to you, Stu? Does that sound like a normal way that things would be managed? Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this one. I'm, I'm waiting for the. I'm waiting for the twist because I know there's some. There's going to be a twist here someplace. So. Well, this woman says this midwife. She says um, she was trained. She trained with a European midwife that told her that she had to learn how to do um, how to manage birth without pelvic exams. Yeah. For two years of clinic, 
Um, and she began to see signs that she could know that it was actually time without having to check. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, she says, um, no one ever swelled, tell her to listen to her body. No one ever swelled her own cervix by gently pushing as directed by her own body's messages. The way swollen cervixes happen is with directed pushing um, that is being instructed by a midwife or a physician that goes beyond the mother's own cues. It has become the paranoia of Northern American midwifery that someone will push on an undilated cervix. Relax. This isn't a big deal. And an uncomfortable pelvic exam at this point can set back a birth for several hours. The external signs you will look for are, do you have any idea of any of these? Well, before you go to that, how, what, I don't disagree with what she's saying, but how does she know that a pelvic exam uh, uh, will could set back a birth several hours? That seems like a generalized statement based on no data. How do you, how do you, what kind of data do you have to say that? I'm surprised that you would be the person who would say, what's the data? Because it's, it's um, watching enough births, right? Where someone does pelvic exams and how things respond and then, um, not doing them and seeing how things progress. To me, it makes total sense because well, I do think as we talk about all interventions, including a pelvic exam can definitely affect how a woman is feeling in labor. True. Uh, I mean, I, I was doing pelvic exams singular. You just, you said pelvic exams, plural, but I'm still saying that first of all, sometimes we have women who want to know, so they ask us to do it, but I just like, you know, before when you, somebody makes a generalized statement like that, I want to be sure that they're not doing to their side what we accuse, to our side, what we accuse other people of doing and making generalizations and stuff like that. Because, because there is information that can be gotten from it. I don't think it's, it could set them back hours every time. I mean, theoretically, it, you know, it might, but just it's, it was a broad statement. And when you said it, it sort of, whoa, hit me. So I just wanted to... To clarify that. We don't need an answer. I just wanted to bring it out so people listening can think for themselves and think, what, yeah. do, what do they think? Uh, it's interesting uh, to consider. Um, so, so this, she says, when she pushes spontaneously, does it begin at the very beginning of the sensation or is it just at the peak? Because we talk about that, right? Their sounds change. We kind of get closer. We get ready for her to start pushing actively. If it's just at the peak, this is an indication that there's still some dilating to do. The woman will usually enter a deep trance state at this time. We call it going to Mars. And she is assessing her rudimentary brainstem where the ancient knowledge of giving birth is stored. She must have quiet and dark to get to this essential place in the brain. She would usually close her eyes um, and should not be told to open them. That's from her perspective. Um, does she push? Well, that makes that, you know, before you go on, that makes really yeah. good sense. I mean, we talk about Sarah Buckley saying safe, quiet, and unobserved. We like to have dark. We tell people they're going to set up the tub, make sure that they're, it's in a room where you can make it cave-like if you want to. Um, the idea, yeah, I mean, all that, that makes, it's beautiful. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. So does she... Not, not taught at all in medical school. <laughs> right. right. Does she quote unquote push that is grunt and bear down with each sensation or every other one? If some sensations don't have a pushing urge, there is still some dilating to do. Keep the room dark and quiet as above. 
Are you continuing to see show? Red show is a sign that cervix is still dilating. Once dilation is complete, the show of blood usually ceases while the head is while the head molding takes place. Then you can see another gush of blood from vaginal wall tears at this point as the head descends towards the perineum. I thought that was quite interesting. I'd have to observe more to see. Yeah, I mean, all this stuff is very uh, insightful um, because yeah. Value, yeah, yeah, she describes it, you think back at births and yeah, I mean, there are some women who continue to have bleeding because they, for whatever reason, but most you know, women, when they're pushing and stuff like that, unless you're doing lots of vaginal exams and causing tears of the hymenal area or whatever, you, you, there is, it usually isn't that much bleeding because the baby's head is tamponading, I suppose. Yeah. Cervix, right. Good. It's cool. Um, watch her rectum. The rectum yeah. will tell you a good deal about way, where the baby's forehead is located and how dilation is going. If there's no rectal flaring or distension with the grunting, then there's still more dilating to do. A dark, we've heard of this one, a dark red line extends straight from the rectum between the bum cheeks when full dilation happens. To observe this, of course, the mother must be in hands and knees or sideline position. So then she says, don't touch her. Use a mirror and a flashlight to be able to see what's happening. Um, and yeah, and then involuntary passing of stool is another sign of descent and full dilation, which makes total sense to me. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I thought that was really, really interesting. There's one more little thing that she says that I want to read to you before we move on, because I probably won't bring this out again. Um, she says, um, reversing the energy. She calls it midwife Tai Chi. Um, normally when you think of a baby coming down and out in this scenario, nothing is moving. Like if a mom is thinking like the baby's feeling stuck, um, it's like having your finger stuck in one of those woven finger traps. The more the mother attempts to bring the baby down, the more tired and tight the process becomes. At this point, it can become helpful to get the mother into a knee chest position and tell her to try and take the baby's bum up to her neck for a few pushes. This will sound strange instruction, but if she has learned to trust you, she will give it a whirl. Reversing the energy and moving in the opposite direction can sometimes perform miracles. After five or six sensations in this position with minimal exertion of the mother, sometimes the fetal head will appear suddenly at the perineum. So what they're saying is, is she should be on her back in knee chest or, or no, no, no. squatting? With her bottom in the air. So knee to chest, head down towards the bed, butt up towards the, oh, okay. butt up so towards the air. Of, so like in the, in the like praying, praying position. Yeah, to kind of give uh, the body an opportunity to maybe readjust and bring the energy in the reverse, which I'm, if I've got a baby who doesn't seem to be moving, I'm totally willing to give it a try. Why not? Yeah, I mean, all those things that you guys do for that, you know, rebozoing, uh, peanuts between their legs, uh, changing position, lunging, all those things. Will, I, I, I've watched you guys do that stuff. And, and um, yeah, it works. And, and the hands-off thing, I mean, we've talked about this before. Um, for me, it was one of the hardest things to learn. Yeah. I think I tell that story of one of the first births I ever did with your, your, our old friend, Alex, where, you know, I, she wouldn't let me do any vaginal exams. And yeah. <laughs> the woman was making sounds and I said, can I check her now? No. All right. And she'd make more sounds. And then but 20 minutes later, can I check her out? No. Go lie down. Go on the couch. It was at the, it was at the old sanctuary birth center. 
love it. And then uh, she starts to make grunting sounds. I said, well, I got to check her now. She says, no, not ready yet. And then, and then the mom starts to go, uh, and she looks at me and she goes, okay, you know, now we can, now we can go in there. Okay. You can come in there. All right. And that was it. And she had no, I mean, essentially most births that I do now, as long as things seem to be going smoothly, there is either zero or one vaginal exam. And so I've, I've adopted that, but it's really nice to hear the, the way she describes it. And so what we should probably do is you should probably give me when we're done, send me the link to that so I can post it on in the show notes because I think people would like to read that. I think that's something that should be mandatory reading. Yeah. There's a lot more good stuff in it. That's just one part of the article. Right. But I'm just saying that that, that's very clear. That's very, very clear. Thanks for saying that. Okay, great. Um, Anything else on your slate? Because I I have a couple things before we get to the the main event. So, no, I'm I'm ready for the main event. Well, I got an interesting letter from uh, Anna in Bangor, Maine, regarding is a malpractice insurance question, and I just wanted to read it. And she's not on. Okay, so she says uh, this is a shot in the dark, but I am a huge fan of the podcast. Soon to be a CPM in Maine. I'm really grateful for the work you do and wish we had the equivalent here. My family doctor, a direct care family doctor who does births, has told me he would love to do home births, but every time he asks his malpractice carrier for a quote, it's in the six figures to add home births to his service offerings. He already does home visits for his patients, including palliative care. Does, does this make sense to you? Is there, is there a workaround or does that expense check out all the best, Anna? So um, this is what I wrote to her and then I'll comment. I said, dear Anna, thanks for listening. Bliss and I are about to record today and I will likely bring up your letter. In a nutshell, I have heard this quote, excuse, unquote, forever. Amounts may vary, but often it's true and can be location state dependent. It is industrial coercion of the, of the worst kind and questionable ethics, but has been generally accepted because most doctors, doctors would not be affected by it since out of the hospital office, I mean, out of the hospital, out of the office work is not something they even consider. I know of local midwives here who have liability insurance for their birth center who have to pay a $1,500 stipend for every VBAC that they do. So my answer to you, Anna, is it's probably true, especially if this is a guy, this guy has no reason to, to give you any BS. I mean, he's telling you the truth. Is it, is it honest? No. Is, it, is there probably actuarial data to support it? No. Um, it is, it is uh, as I said, I, I thought about it, I, and I used the term um, industrial coercion because that, to me, is what it's like. They're basically saying to you, you will do it this way, and we will dictate how you practice medicine. I've always said that many times insurance companies, hospitals don't have a license to practice medicine, yet they're the ones dictating how the people that have a license to practice medicine can practice medicine. So what's the difference? Why are they not, you know, if I, if, if I practice medicine without a license, I, that's a felony. Yeah. An insurance company does it and it's normal business. So it's a bit screwy and it's really tragic because it does prevent, I mean, in countries like England and Denmark where they have these smooth transitions and they encourage that sort of thing, they would, they would never do that. There are, there are physicians sometimes who do home birthing in other countries 
And I, that's why people like me go bare because there is no insurance for what I do. And if they offered it, it would probably be very expensive and they would begin to restrict what I would do. They would say, well, you can't do breaches. Or if you do breaches, right. that'll be an extra $5,000 per, per client, which is untenable and, and can't be done. So yeah. um, yes, it's the, it's the way the world is. And unfortunately, uh, I don't know that there's an option for it other than if he decides to do it without insurance, which of course then might affect the insurance that he has that covers him for the, hosp the hospital. Right. So that's why I don't do that. Well, I don't do both because I don't want to go back to the hospital, but the only guy I knew that ever did both was a guy named Dr. Mayor Eisenstein in, in Chicago. He's passed away, but he had a very busy practice doing four or 500 births a year between himself and his midwife team in the home and hospital setting. And he was the only one I knew. I got to hear him speak once at a, at a meeting in Ventura County, California. And it was very interesting. We had a great talk afterwards, but, but he sort of had a unique thing and he was always under fire too. So it's, it, it is what it is. Yeah. And I'm sure he had to do that many births in order to cover his, his malpractice insurance, you know, which is the quality of care starts to get diminished when you have to do great numbers in order to just be able to, you know, make a decent living for yourself. So. Yeah. And he had, he had a really large, I mean, I think he had a really large group of midwives and team that worked for him. Mm -hmm. So it was, I mean, it, it was, it was more like a clinic than it would be any of the settings that you and I talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what did we do the other night? What did we do the other night? We went for a walk on the beach. We did. I, I invited Dr. Stu to come up um, to where I'm staying and take a nice sunset walk and then made some dinner and um, watched this movie because he thought it would be a good idea. It's going to be the talk of the town, which you're right. I'm starting to see billboards and people posting about it. So I'm glad that we're, we're, we're in the know. We've seen it and can have a true informed opinion about it. Um, and, the and, then, uh, called, and the film is called Pieces of a Woman and probably everyone who's listening has heard about it now because... It's getting a on lot Netflix. Of hype. Yeah, it's on Netflix. It's getting a lot of hype. It was directed by a Hungarian person named Corny Mandrako. I'm, I'm, I want to pronounce it correctly because it's difficult to pronounce. His name is, um, oh boy, where did you go? Oh, uh, Corny Mandrazzo. Mandrazzo. And um, he's Hungarian. And it stars Vanessa Kirby and Sheila LaBeouf. And it um, has a pretty intense opening scene, which is what it's famous for. And so Bliss and I are going to talk a little bit about um, the movie itself, our, our, our impressions of the movie. And Bliss, in order to do this, I sort of broke it up into different segments for the movie because okay. there's certainly different parts of the movie. All right. But to set the stage, it supposedly takes place in Boston in the wintertime. It's... Uh, what was it, November? Yeah, I think it was November. Anyway, it was mm -hmm. cold outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe September. They have a labor scene. And why don't you give me your impressions of the labor scene? The labor scene on screen lasts 24 minutes. Well, it's interesting because when people said it was intense and, you know, a home birth gone wrong and all of that, I definitely expected 
worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In terms of like how the actual birth scene unfolded and, um, you know, besides the timing, which we were laughing about it being kind of unrealistic, like the, they called the midwife and, um, she was super chatty. Um, so it seemed to us like she was just getting into the active phase. Um, and the midwife showed up on her doorstep, the mm-hmm. replacement midwife, like 10 minutes later, maybe five, like three minutes later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were like, well, that was fast. Yeah. Just, just um, for the listeners who haven't seen it, by the way, this is, this is the spoiler alert. I mean, if you haven't yeah. seen it, you might want to not listen right now. So Sorry. we don't, don't mm-hmm. want to spoil, but according to the, I read the synopsis of the film and I read some things on the film the whole 24 minutes was supposed to be 16 hours. That's interesting. I'm yeah. Not sure how it would. Well, they couldn't they could, because way. they ran it. They ran it as a continuous scene, sort of like they did in 1917 or an Alfred Hitchcock movie where they, yeah. like they run a continuous, the, a camera that's a continuous scene through a, through a whole long period of time. And it was very interesting, by the way, if you, if people are geeks about movie making is to read how they shot that scene how the cameraman and the gaffers and all that stuff and the Foley people, they were all moving. <laughs> they were all dodging the, the action. And at one point, actually, Sheila Booth bumps into the, um, into the camera guy, but they kept that. You can't tell it because we, we didn't know, but that's the scene that they actually kept. Hmm. Um, but so, yes, one of the things that was really hard about the scene was because agreed that, that she shows up really early and. And quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, quickly, yeah. because she had just hung up the phone with her midwife. We said, I'm sending over someone else. Mm-hmm. And then the doorbell, <laughs> the doorbell rings. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and so, you know, I've peripherally seen some comments from birth workers who are, have been really critical about how she um, is being represented, the midwife. But honestly, I felt like they did a pretty good representation of um, her checking the baby's vitals right away, um, you know, getting the bed ready, getting them into the bathtub so that she could relax because her contract, her water broke and now her contractions are coming right on top of each other. This is before she starts pushing. Um, And, um, you know, she was, she, she addresses the fact that she's probably not the midwife she wanted. She speaks really kindly to them. She's very warm. Um, So, you know, I I was expecting a lot, the midwife to be depicted in a, in a much less, um, you know, nice light. Um, but I thought, I thought she seemed pretty lovely personally. Yeah. How about you? I I agree with you. I think that, you know, for filmmaking purposes, you have to take artistic license. You can't, you can't show her, um, unpacking her suitcase and putting everything in. I mean, that's boring. Nobody's going to want to watch all that. So they, (laughs) they took the highlights of it. Like you said, she carried, she had two little bags with her. Um, you know, she didn't have oxygen. She didn't have all those other things that normally you and I would bring to a birth, but that's, it's not really, you know, it, it isn't really relevant to the, that, that part of the filmmaking, showing her setting up the bed, showing her running the water, showing her speaking very, like you said, speaking very kindly to them saying, I know I'm not the midwife you want, but I'm really good at this and I'm really going to take care of you. And I'm going to, you know, be there for you and do all those things, so all the reassuring things that you want in that scenario makes perfect sense. And this is, this, this movie is based on the, I, I think the wife of the director's actual experience. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you because I didn't look it up if it was based on something that really happened. Yeah, and I also read a little bit about how, you know, Hungary is the country that has that had the incident with Agnes Zagreb. She mm-hmm. was a doctor midwife who ended up going to prison mm-hmm. for having, uh, you know, having some bad outcomes outside of the home. And, uh, you know, I think actually our friend Hermine Hayes-Klein uh, represented her, represented the one of the women mm-hmm. in the... Uh, uh, court of the, the International Court of Human Rights or something in The Hague. And um, so there's a little ties there, but this isn't the story of, of one of Dr. Zagreb's clients. It's the story of this woman. And it was, a, I think it was a play first and they made it into a movie and they actually mm. tried to, they tried to get European filmmakers and Hungarian film um, uh, sponsors to sponsor the film. They couldn't do it. So they brought it over to America and then there were some people that picked it up here, including Martin Scorsese was one of the executive producers. But yeah. I would not, I just wanted to add, I do not think that she needed to do a vaginal exam as soon as she arrived because that, that really didn't yeah, make any was sense actually, to me. That's why you and I think alike. Cause that was actually one of my next points was yeah. it ties into your, the thing that you read earlier, just a minute mm-hmm. ago about there was no reason to do a vaginal exam, but a lot of a lot of midwives and a lot of medwives and a lot of doctors and stuff think that that's part of the normal normal thing, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people who still do a who do vaginal exams in labor because not everybody um, practices midwifery the same way. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact that things that go on on the East Coast are often different than the West Coast. First of all, it's really really rare. I know I think I know of one midwife on the whole West Coast who does things all by herself. Yeah, I don't love I don't love um, doing births by myself. I I would not prefer that. And right. she didn't so have an assistant. She showed up without an assistant, without a student, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. by herself. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's something that. But I know that there are East Coast midwives that that, that practice that way. Mm-hmm. So that's it's all within the realm of normal. And I, as you said, the overall take of it was that yeah, I mean, first of all, the acting was really good. The the um, the relationship between the two the couple. And all that at the beginning of the film was, I thought was great. And I thought mm-hmm. that's Kirby's sounds and, and uh, yeah, her and acting then, was great. And then suddenly she breaks up laughing because he tells her some jokes and, and he distracts her. And you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was, it was quite good. I was expecting this, this, because I'd read about it too, this huge disaster that happens. All right. Can you check the waiting room by the way? Oh, I can. Thank you. I got it. I just got a text. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, okay. Stacey. Sorry. Welcome, Stacey. Okay. And uh, go ahead. So you've thought that the relationship between the couple was really accurate. I did too. I thought that like they were doing a great job. He was, he was doing great as a papa. I would be proud of him. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So then, so then we get to the point where, you know, obviously everything goes really fast. I mean, for a prime to go from rupturing your membranes and 20 minutes later and having a baby, but they have to do that. They can't have a full labor on television. Just it's not or on, in the movies. It's not going to work. So um, the baby's heart rate is normal for a little while. And then the baby's heart rate is down. Now I couldn't tell when you were listening, were you hearing heart rate at all there? Because when I read the reviews and stuff, they talk about the baby's heartbeat being slow. And it's like, I don't think she heard it at all. I think that there was panic and, and you could sense that in the mid, in the actress playing the midwife that there was some um, panic. She was trying to reassure the husband, but there was definitely concern in her voice, right? However, 
People who do do deliveries know that sometimes when the baby is going underneath the pubic bone, it's hard to get heart tones. And the baby was coming pretty quickly. So um, the only thing I would say about that is when she walked into the other room while the mom was pushing. I'm not sure exactly what she was doing in the other room. And he asked if everything was okay. That that to me may have been something that was not necessarily managed um, very well, but everything else that I was witnessing um, seemed like because the baby was coming quickly, because the heart rate was good when she first listened, um, that, you know, probably the most appropriate thing to do is to get the baby earthside, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that she walked in the other room for artistic license. So in other words, she could have a scene with just Shia LaBeouf by himself. Mm-hmm. There's, no re- there's no way that she would leave the mother at that point. Right. Not, right. not to chart. Not, I mean, I mean, she was obviously charting or something, but but there was no way that that would happen. But they, I think they did that because they had to do that mm-hmm. because they had to find a way to get the two of them away from uh, Vanessa Kirby so that they could, they could um, have that conversation mm-hmm. and that trying to reassure her, but you could, you could really see that because we've all been through that. Where the Mm -hmm. husband or the mother-in-law or mother is asking us, is my daughter okay? Is my wife okay? Is the baby okay? It's like, your heart rate is going 160 beats a minute inside, but you have to have that. And I thought that the actress who played the midwife did a great job there. I really did. Because she showed reassurance to him, but you could tell that it was, you know, Thin she wasn't she wasn't sure which way right. it would go, which is how it is sometimes. It could either be fine or it could not be fine. And then at that point, she or she asked to call 911, doesn't she? Not in that scene. No, she goes no. back, she goes no. back into the room and then she says, I think you should have um yeah. Does she try to listen again? Yes. Yeah. She listens a couple of times during the pushing. Right. Mm-hmm. And then she says, we need to call 911. Mm-hmm. Seemed totally appropriate. Yeah. Yep. Right. Because this yeah. is going to lead us to the part that you and I both don't like very much, which down the road of the of the film. But yeah. So she, but the baby comes out, and this is the part that's confusing to me. Yeah. Me I too. expected the baby to come out completely floppy and be or dead because I'd heard that there's it's a it's a tragic loss at a home birth, and the baby comes out, and it's like within a few seconds, it's. It's eyes are open. And it, it, I remember you look at me and you go, Oh, you, you that's said, not what we expected. Yeah. I know you said, you said, wait a minute. Is it a dream? So now I'm thinking we're in a dream scene or something. Yes. I thought it mm-hmm. might be a dream scene because the baby came out mm-hmm. and had perfect tone and good color and was crying and was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, and the midwife goes and she takes a moment and she's like, okay, great. Everything's she, yeah, fine. She yeah. It's all very well. Mm-hmm. Cause that's how we, that's how we feel. I remember many times after I've done a really, really difficult delivery and you guys swoop in and do your thing. And I go in the other room and I just go, wow. And then, and then you or Beth will come in and put a blood pressure cuff on me. <laughs> 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 Sounds like a Beth move. That's <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. And then um, she turns around, the baby is changing colors. She says, let me see the baby. Um, and then basically I think that's when she does a little bit. You can hear the bag. Yes. It's not in. It's not in the picture, and then it cuts. Right. right? And they described yeah. that in the in the in the reviews I read about the movie or the synopsises. They said that there was no point in showing any more than that. That's all they needed to do um, to let me know that, that, that a tragedy had occurred. They yeah, and it makes it made me think of a heart condition. 
a bit, you know, like, because if you take NRP and you know NRP, babies don't normally come out and cry and they're great and then they tank. Like you said, they would probably come out and need resuscitation and not respond well to it. So it just made me think like there must have been some kind of heart anomaly or something like that. I would like to actually read the true story and see if there's anything. But but later on in the movie, maybe that's what you're about to segue to. Um, they are talking to a medical expert. It's the, cor- and, it's the coroner. Oh, it's the coroner. Um, and they can't explain what happened. Yeah, it's like one of those, which does happen sometimes where there is, it happened at the sanctuary once, you know, where there was absolutely no heart tone issues, no meconium, no reason for us to believe that anything was going on and the baby just never took a breath, never responded. Um, so yeah, it does believable. happen. That's more believable than in this scenario where the baby seemed to be doing yeah. just fine. And then, yeah. and then she turns her back and then suddenly the baby's blue and it goes downhill from that. So that yeah. is possibly consistent with a baby with something like what I... The only thing I can think of that would happen, which of course would be picked up immediately on an x-ray or an autopsy, would be a diaphragmatic hernia, where the baby, mm-hmm. baby is born, but has but the lungs don't develop. And so it, it comes out vigorous, and then it can't breathe. It's vigorous, and but it's, it's still connected it's, to, the, um, to the umbilical cord, right? Yeah. It's still getting oxygen from the mother, but the minute the, that sort of slows down then that happens. But, you know, we could speculate all day long. This, again, this was, this was, it's not explained why, why it happened. And yeah. it's really not necessary because the movie really isn't about that cause. The movie is about the aftermath of, of what happened. But the, the scene, the reason we're talking about it is because this is going to be something that's going to be brought up at every new patient consult um, that happens. Like when, when, when a celebrity has a home birth that goes awry that's something mm-hmm. that, that, that comes up at, at consults. And so, uh, you know, part of me wants to talk about it so that it's out there. People can form their own opinions. I think that birth workers should probably see it, not to be critical of it, not to do anything, but just so that they're aware of what their clients might be coming in and talking about and so that they can put their minds at ease. By the way, those of you who are here joining us live today, if you want to put anything in the chat, you have any questions or comments about if you've seen the movie, we're happy to... Um to hear them. Um, did you want to talk about the case at all? Well, not yet. First, I wanted to get to the, um, the uh, family relationships. I mean, just mm-hmm. briefly. Mm-hmm. Dynamics between uh, the, let's see, was mom. it? Her mom. Her mom mm-hmm. and the family and how the family broke down. Um, what's, your, what's your experience with that when there's a, when there's a loss? Well, because they, they seem they seem like this at the, the mom, yeah. No, the yeah. couple, the couple. Oh, the couple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it just completely unraveled. Yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, I felt like the sex scene was pretty interesting. Um, the, just, I'll, the, I'll just the, leave it at that. The the scene where he wanted to have sex. Yeah, right. yeah. It was it was pretty interesting. Um, so. I haven't personally had a loss, so I can't speak to, to the relationships breaking down um, in, in the face of that. But, you know, I feel like um, my sister had a loss from SIDS, not during the delivery, and it definitely um, broke down their marriage. So I think that that is something that does happen and that is frequent. Um, 
I thought the dynamics with her mom was very interesting to me because, you know, there's this scene where her mom says, if you had just done it the way that I wanted you to, you'd be holding your baby. Um, And that that line got me as well, because that's the line that, that people give to people who are having home births, you know, they're the fear they're planning the, that fear. And then, and then the, in not being able to keep it to themselves afterwards and being able and, and having to be, be right all the time or to be, you know, somehow be on top of the other yeah. person by saying that that was about the worst thing that you could possibly just say to somebody. Right? Yeah. She was yeah. very strong in her response, but nonetheless, um, good point. Yeah. Um, and that seems, you know, uh, like a realistic depiction to me of something that possibly could happen from, you know, a lot of times when women are trying to make the decision to, um, to have an out of hospital delivery, they do have to deal with, um, you know, their, their tribe, their family, their friends, and what their opinions are about this. Um, so that's to me seemed like a very, very realistic kind of depiction of what possibly could happen. Right. And then, you know, then I thought that they, it got a little hokey where, where, where he got involved with somebody else who's closely related to the family that just like that and all that stuff that was going on. And she, and, and boy, did she have a conflict of interest, the lawyer. Oh yeah, because she's having sex with the husband. Yeah, and she's the prosecutor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah. There's, you know, I mean, it, it would. Never mind. We'll just leave. <laughs> just leave yeah, it. Yeah, that's no, just movie drama. That doesn't have anything to do with. Um, but I do. You, if you remember, the whole time I was because they do. Um, the mom does push towards um, having the loss. The, the mother of the birthing woman um, yeah, does push towards having the lawsuit. Um, and I was so, that's the part that was the hardest for me is like, why is the midwife being prosecuted? Because there, the, you know, this is the thing is that sometimes this happens. Sometimes it happens in the hospital. Sometimes it happens at home and it's, it's no fault to anyone, you know, it's just part of, life and death. So that part for me, you know, I know that that is also very realistic, but it did bother me. Yeah. What's really realistic about that is when usually the couples who have a relationship with the midwife have, have no desire to sue a midwife. Yeah. Especially if they feel like they did everything that they did. And, And there is some, at the end of the movie, there is some clarification that they felt that the midwife did everything she was supposed to be doing, even though they didn't show it on TV. I mean, obviously she didn't do, they didn't show her doing, NRP and all that, but, but it comes from afterwards, people going to an event or something like that. And somebody saying, you know, I know this really good attorney or that, uh, that, that, that person must've really screwed up or whatever. And they're planting these seeds and they plant these seeds and the mother who's what, by the way, one of my favorite actresses, by the way, is Ellen, Ellen Burstyn. Um, the, the grandmother. Yeah, mm-hmm. grandmother. Um, she was great because she was, <laughs> you didn't like her, uh, in a lot of the parts of the movie, but she pushed mm-hmm. this thing in, and you think back of it, and 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 it's and the idea that they were going to try to try to prosecute this person, this midwife, for a felony, for manslaughter, mm-hmm. for what? I mean, she came to assist at a birth, and it didn't go well, and this this 
brings up a whole bag of worms for me because if you look at, at most malpractice lawsuits in the hospital setting, they're not negligence. There's bad outcomes that happen and somebody wants to be blamed. And I think that this is the mother's way of coping with her inability to relate to her daughter very well was to, to have this uh, idea and this power of saying what she said, what you just said she said, and then going at, and then urging the family to go after this midwife for some sort of retribution or whatever that will never come because mm -hmm. you never, you'll never no, no amount of money, no amount of pain that you inflict on somebody else. is going to resolve your own grief. Um, and so I did, I did, I didn't like the fact that it, and that went, that that happened too. I agree with you. I think that that's, I guess we can project our own selves into that scenario. And so it's, it was rather uncomfortable to have to watch that. Yeah. And the grandmother does touch on her own kind of birth trauma during that scene too. I don't know if you remember that. She talks about her yeah. mom. Born yeah. In, uh, born during the, uh, during the Holocaust and she was. Mm -hmm. yeah, right? mm -hmm. yeah. So that's kind of, you know, it doesn't, it's not a big part of it, but it was part of it. Um, and then during the actual um, case, one of the things that stood out to me is um, they said that she didn't monitor the baby while she was in the tub. Um, yeah. Now, if it was 17 hours long and she didn't monitor the baby in the tub, that might be negligence when it, in, in, in accordance to the true story. But um, in the movie where it's a 25 minute scene that is supposed to be just unfolding very quickly, um, you would you would set up your equipment. You wouldn't be monitoring. She wasn't pushing yet. So you monitored the baby when you got there. Um, and you would probably, you know, according to California standards, um, or our local standards, you would listen every 30 minutes. So when she started to have the urge to push or when she was pushing, um, I guess you would that I'll take that back. I will amend that. We often do listen to the baby in the water when they first get into the tub. Um, but also she did know that things were moving very quickly. She had just listened to the baby. She didn't have an assistant. She probably did want to set up her meds and all the other things that could possibly happen. So, um, but that was another one that I was like, you know, there wasn't really enough time to do another, another check necessarily. No, and the, and the whole thing about that too is, is that if, if it had been early labor or middle of labor and the woman was home alone, no one's monitoring the baby. Yeah. So, I mean, most people labor most of their labor without being monitored um, through the early parts of their labor. Yeah. And again, you're right. Because they abbreviated the whole birth scene, and that maybe some of the court stuff didn't, didn't quite make sense. Yeah. So we have about five minutes left. Is there anything else that was really important to you to mention about your observations? Well, I was, uh, again, without trying to influence other people on how they see the movie. I expected more from the movie. I, mm -hmm. thought the movie. I thought the movie was shot in an odd way. It was very disjointed. I mean, also I have to say that pardon me, my hearing isn't great. And, and the way we were listening in the audio and the ocean in the background, <laughs> which was lovely. Um, I couldn't hear a lot of the dialogue. Sometimes I would ask you, what did he say? And you'd say, I, I, I missed that. I don't know what he said. Mm -hmm. So I'm missing some of the dialogue, but it also seemed a little bit disjointed. There were scenes where she's doing this and yeah, I mean, they have the quick scene where she's lactating in the store or she's hugged by uh, her mom's friend and, and have to drag through that conversation for 30 minutes and that sort of thing. But there were, there were like, like a lot of little intermittent scenes 
and it just seemed a little bit chopped up for me. I, I, I wanted, I wanted more of the relationship breaking up and, and that whole thing. And it just, I, I didn't, I didn't get the sense that, that that part of the movie was as good as I wanted it to be. Yeah. Oh, there was the inaccurate, I don't know what it was like six weeks later or something where she's still um, putting ice on her breasts, like as if she was still having issues with um, engorgement, which is, yeah. would, would be happening. <laughs> That's another like fact that we're like, what? Yeah, you, you, have, you have a good memory for those, th those little details. And I, I'm looking at, and you're right. I mean, there are like little things that you can pick up on that. I mean, wasn't it like a week or week and a half later, she's out in, in back at work or something like that? Wasn't that happening? Yeah, but I'll, I'll say as a, as, as a woman who's lost a child in a different way, um, that wasn't totally unrealistic to me um, that she might just be like, I just want to go back to work and not think about this. I think it was a, I think it was two weeks later. Um, yeah, they so, a very, very subtle scene where everyone's staring at her. And she does have depends on when she goes into the bathroom, which I really liked. I felt like they um, did that accurately at her work. She was still wearing, you know, so what would, you know, if, if you were going to be, uh, um, I was trying to think of a good synonym for rotten tomatoes for, uh, for birth workers, but <laughs> you're going to give it, you know, a hundred percent being top and zero. What would you, what would you give it? As a movie, just as yeah. watching a movie, because uh -huh. Stu and I really do like movies. By the way, when there were movie theaters, we used to like to go to the movies together. Um, I, I don't know. It was. I don't. Yeah, I think if I was just watching it as a movie, I don't know, like a five, six, maybe. Yeah, her, I, I, actor, her acting was really great. I do think her acting was really great, but as a movie in general, yeah. I mean, a lot of the scenes there were there was even on when we were talking about with Vanessa Kirby. This, she did a lot of acting without any verb, without any verbal. It was just her face and the reactions and things like that, which I thought was excellent. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a movie worth seeing. And the beginning certainly wasn't anything like Saving Private Ryan, where I, I didn't. I would the first, the opening twenty minutes of Saving Private Ryan was was a thousand times more intense than the opening twenty minutes of this movie. But it, you know, this is a thing that touches all families because birth touches everybody. It is going to be something that's going to cause a stir in the home birth world for a little while. And some of the, I told you, some of the people in academia will be like the mother-in-law, uh, excuse me, the mother, the grandmother, will say things like, see, I told you, if you would have done this in the hospital, yeah, but, there, you know, what are all the negatives of being in the hospital? I, I, would, I would say that it's worth, absolutely worth seeing for any birth worker to see and people, but I'm not sure that it's a guy flick. I don't know that, that guys yeah. are going to want to go see it. I think guys would rather go see uh, Gal Gadot and uh, Wonder Woman. As, as bad as it might be, they'd probably rather see that three times than, than see this movie. But yeah. I, you know, I would still give it like a, a, a 70 on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that, or, or a, you know, a 7 out of 10. Okay. Yeah. Um, Danny, who's joining us today, says she's going to wait until after her own home birth to watch it, which I think... <laughs> I, I absolutely think that that's a very good decision. Um, so yeah, yeah. I just yeah. remember that 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 they don't make movies very many movies about planes that land safely. They make movies about yeah guys landing planes in the Hudson River. Okay. Yeah, they much more you know, interesting. So it's the same sort of thing. It's about when they make a movie like this, even even comedies, um, the movies with, you know uh, with Seth Rogen where he's the uh, the unexpected father, I forgot what it's called. It's knocked up, I think, or something like that. 
they still make they make the birth scenes sort of either hysterical or screaming or whatever. They just they 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 have to dramatize it because most yeah. are most births are very quiet, peaceful, and and in um, the home setting. And that this was that birth until things went south at the end. At the very end. Yeah, so. um, Bethany, thanks for joining us. She says she likes the Zoom and she's gonna come back if we keep offering them, which for right now we are. So it is eleven o'clock. You might want to uh, do our little closing. Uh, no, it's got- eleven o'clock. I've got to leave the boo and go out and visit some clients today in Hollywood. So I got to get running. Yeah. It's really hard for you to get out of the Malibu, isn't it? It's so hard. All right. Well, <laughs> all right so uh, we hope. What does your shirt say? Someone wants to know what your shirt says. Oh. My shirt says, it says, I lost an electron. And the other Adam says, are you positive? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, actually, this is, a, this is the same shirt that, uh, that um, Peter Parker is wearing in, in Spider-Man. Uh, I think it's the, it's homecoming. No, it's, it's at the, I think it's at the end when he's with Tony Stark and he, I, I bought this t-shirt because I loved that t-shirt that he was wearing. So I just, oh, ordered, that's awesome. I ordered that's it. Awesome. I think it's really funny. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a geek. It's a scientific geek joke. You know, I lost an electron. Are you positive? <laughs> Which is <laughs> pretty funny. So, um, and Jennifer, who's here, said that I read her um, review today. So that is so cool that you're on and I read your review. Um, before we sign off, Ellen wants to know how long after lives are podcasts are they posted to iTunes? How long does it take? What's the delay? Well, normally it's about four days, but uh, right now we're in transition with our our technical support people. So it might be a little mm-hmm. bit later. I am posting the videos on Rumble. And now, Facebook. Rumble. What's that? And Facebook. I saw it on Facebook. Well, I post the link. Yeah, I post the links on Facebook too. And I, but the video itself, I think, is on Rumble. Yeah. Are, they, are the videos on Facebook too? Yes. Oh. All right. Yeah. I'm, not sure. I'm not sure I did. I don't know how that I did that. But I, I, am, I am doing all that stuff myself right now. And mm-hmm. Rumble, I'm at Birthing Instincts. So if you go to Rumble, which is sort of this new open platform that's supposed to compete with YouTube because they don't censor things. Um, so I've decided that I, you know, because I'm sort of a libertarian in those things and I don't like the fact that there's censorship going on in certain of uh, the electronic media that I'm going to try to use alternative media if possible. Um, so that you can find it there. And okay. that'll be posted probably later today or tomorrow on Rumble. Uh, so you can t- send friends there, but it'll all, always the audio will be up on either Dr. Seuss podcast or on your smartphone app uh, shortly within a few days. Great. So, okay. so this has been Dr. Seuss podcast number one ninety seven, calling it Bliss on the Rocks uh, <laughs> because of the well, but it's B L I S S because the birth bliss ended up on the rocks, and then I have that beautiful picture from the sunset, which I've used uh, of the rocks in the sunset. So I thought that was a cute little segue. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that you have many things that you can do with an hour of your time. And we do appreciate that you spend an hour with us because uh, we value what you um, have to say. We like getting your letters. We really appreciate you. Love them. And your comments and your reviews. So uh, write a nice review on uh, your uh, your smartphone app, I guess, is where they want to write the review. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And uh, you can find me at uh, birthinginstincts.com, bliss at birthing bliss midwifery. You can find, uh, you can write bliss at bliss at birthingbliss.com and me at askdrstuartgmail.com. Until next time, again, this is Dr. Stuart Fishbein, home birth obstetrician and movie reviewer with <laughs> with Bliss Young. Uh, we'll see you. We'll see you soon. Bye bye. Have a great week. <laughs>